if I might uh, address the topic of the current Israel-Arab conflict in some way for a couple of weeks. And uh, had one finish up in the, the New Life class, which I did last week, but they kind of fit together. And uh, I can refer back to what we looked at last week, and uh, I think you'll uh, be able to connect it up as well. But we're going to be talking about the Arab-Israel conflict, Hamas, and the whole thing. But I'm, I'm not going to get into current events today. Next week, we will look at the prophetic implications of what's now happening in Israel. And we'll also, I'll also try to provide for you a, a historical perspective on who Hamas is and how this whole Palestinian thing got started to begin with. And that will be, I think, very helpful. It's been very helpful for me to, uh, to learn that myself. I mean, I knew parts of it, but hadn't really put it all together. So we'll kind of do both of those next week. And uh, that's going to be a little bit more fun, a little bit more uh, exciting to talk about the prophetic the implications of the end time. But before we can get there, we're going to go back to the beginning. It's always good to start at the beginning. Uh, and if you want to understand, understand, you know, what's going to happen in the end. So, what is that beginning? And that's where we're going to be today. And that is the Abrahamic Covenant. Genesis chapter 12. If you'd like to turn there. If you want to do one thing to help you understand end time events, biblical prophecy, that is the most important thing you can do is understand the Abrahamic covenant. That's where everything begins. And if you understand what's going on there and what the Abrahamic covenant is all about, it'll clue you in when you hear something that's off that somebody says about their end time perspective, such as what we saw in those various charts last week. Because if you start with the Abrahamic covenant, and you understand it, you interpret it literally as you should, and you move forward with that perspective, you're going to end up as a pre-tribulational, pre-millennialist. That's where you're going to end up. You can't end up anyplace else. So let's talk about the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going, to, I'm going to whiz through this. But you've got a study guide there. I tried to uh, limit the number of fill-ins this week a little bit. Uh, because I kind of want you to just listen, absorb, focus, <coughs> take this in mostly. But you also will probably want to, if not soon, sometime in the future, come back to this, want to study some of this more in detail for yourself. I'm going to give you more or less an overview of the Abrahamic Covenant and, uh, and so on. So the basics of the Abrahamic Covenant. There are four in the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12. I'm not putting any scripture on screen because I've got enough slides as it is. So I hope you've got your, your Bible or your uh, device there and you can follow along. And uh, I'm reading from the New American Standard. Now the Lord said to Abram, remember it was called Abram long before God renamed him Abraham. But it's Abraham. And I'm going to use the term Abraham just like I'm going to use the term Sarah or Sarah at one point early, almost called Sarai. So uh, when I say Abraham and Sarah, we just keep it consistent throughout so there's no confusion. 
The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Now remember, Abram at this point is living in Mesopotamia. He's living over in the Tigris-Euphrates area, the Fertile Crescent. Uh, he lived in the city of Ur, you are. He came from, as far as who he descended from, he came from Shem. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the three sons of Noah. People that settled in Mesopotamia were Shemites. So, God says, go to a new country, leave where you're at. And that's what he does. And he does that by faith. And God blesses him. And he, he is considered righteous because of his faith, as we learn in the New Testament. So, the four parts of the promise made, and this at this point is, is a promise. It's not technically a covenant yet. It will become that a little later. But here's the first four aspects of the promise that God made to him if he would leave and go to the land. And Abraham didn't know where he was going. He was just going wherever God led him. And then, of course, he led him to the promised land. Abraham's descendants would become a great nation is the first one. And that's in uh, verse 2. And I will make you a great nation. Well, that's what happened. Abraham became the father of the Jewish people, father of Israel. He, all, all Jewish people, all uh, people uh, that were out of Judah or the dispersed tribes, wherever they ended up or however they went, they all came from Abraham and Sarah. But God told him there's going to be a great nation arise from him. Secondly, God said he would bless Abraham and make his name great. So we read that next. And I will bless you and make your name great. Then number three, Abraham will be a blessing to all nations. And so we read, and so you shall be a blessing. That's all he says here. You shall be a blessing. But if you drop down uh, to the next verse, which we'll come back to in a different vein in a minute, it says, and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So when he says in verse 2, I will, you will be a blessing, he expands on it in the latter part of verse 3 and says, through you I will bless all the families of the earth. Now, that eventually is fulfilled through one of Abraham's descendants, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, the sacrifice for sins. And... and the gospel going out to the families all over the world, every every race, every uh, country, every nationality. <coughs> so that has come true. Then number four, God would bless those who blessed Abraham and curse those who cursed him. Now it says, I will bless the one who curses you. But that, I believe this involves all of Abraham's descendants as well. Because all these promises and all the covenant not only applies to Abraham, but it applies actually more fully to his descendants. Because Abraham never really possessed the land. That never happened until they came back from Egypt under Moses. And we have to understand, 
Abram was a nomadic shepherd. And uh, he moved all about the land. And God showed him what he was going to give. But he didn't take control of it or possess it at that point. So here's the basics of the Abrahamic covenant. Now we're going to understand more about why this is so important when we move forward. Details and expansions of the Abrahamic covenant occur throughout the rest of the book of Genesis and into the book of Exodus and all the way down to the time of David. If you move over or actually just down a few verses in Genesis 12, 7, sometime shortly after this, after, after Abram had left and came to the land that God led him to, verse 7 says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. Now that's the first mention of the land. The land really wasn't mentioned in those first four promises. It can be, we can understand it's implied because a nation has to play, have a place to live. But he specifies when he comes to verse 7, he says, to your descendants, I will give this land. The land where he was at. It's the land of Israel. You go over to chapter 17, verse 8, you'll find the same thing. I won't turn over there to read it, but the same promise. I will give you this land. Then in chapter 13, verse 6, he, already told, he was already been told, you'll be uh, the progenitor of a great nation. This is a further detail we find in chapter 13, verse 6, chapter 15, verse 5, again in chapter 22, verse 17, after he offered Isaac, that Abraham's descendants would be innumerable, as the stars of the sea, as the sand on the shore. Those are the expressions used. Another expansion of the great nation promise and the blessing promise goes to all nations. Number three. Abraham would be the father of many nations, as specifically said in chapter 17, verse 5. Now, we'll understand why that's mentioned in 17, 5 a little bit later today. But just, just to clue you in here, Abraham is also the father of the Arabic nations through Ishmael. And that's where we're going with that. And then that's part of the expansion on the initial promises. In chapter 17, verse 6, he says kings would come from Abraham. Not king, but kings. And he didn't only mean this uh, in terms of in your line, like down to David. Uh, he also meant it in terms of how it would spread out through Ishmael and the Arabic countries. And then in chapter 17, verse 7, that this covenant would be eternal. And finally, in 2217, that Abraham's descendants would be victorious over their enemies. Now, that doesn't mean in every case in history, but ultimately, they will be victorious over all their enemies. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes back, will take care of that. Now, the eternal <laughs> aspect of this, and the covenant aspect of this, let me make sure I'm in the right spot here before I jump into this. No, I'm going to wait a little bit on that. Let's move ahead. Now, we've looked at the basic promises in chapter 12. We looked at the various details of 
that are added throughout the book of Genesis. But we want to come back to the land part. It's mentioned in chapter 12, uh, down at verse 7 for the first time. And that is crucial to everything that's going on with Hamas and Israel and the the Islamic countries of Israel, all of that. And it is absolutely critical to understand that in terms of future prophecy. The end times. Everything, everything happens right there. The battle of Armageddon, right there. The coming back of the Lord Jesus Christ, right there. That's the land. So, Remember, Abraham was called to leave his country and go to a land that God would show him in chapter 12, verse 1 of Genesis. Leave the country, verse 1, and go forth from your country and from your village, from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Now, the land isn't promised at that point specifically. It is down in verse 7. It was implied earlier, specified in verse 7. So God promised then to give the land to Abraham and his descendants. Again, verse 7. But you go over to chapter 13, verse 14 to 17. We won't go over there and read that. But there we're told that he would give the land of Abraham to his descendants forever. So we're close. Let's, let's just go ahead and look at that so we confirm it. Chapter 13, verse 14. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated himself, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For the land which you see, I will give it to you, to your descendants forever. Now ultimately, forever they will possess that land and live in that land. In the millennium, on the earth, this earth. I think in some sense that stretches into the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, a new land, perhaps. I don't know exactly, but uh, it's important to catch that northward, southward, eastward. He's starting to deal with the confines of the land here, uh, as Moses writes. But before we go any further with that, chapter 15, verses 7 to 21 is where God confirms the land promise by making an unconditional covenant with Abraham. Here's where the covenant is made in chapter 15. So let's look at chapter 15, verse 7. The Lord speaking to Abraham in verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess it. And then Abraham responds in verse 8. He said, Oh Lord, how may I know that I will possess it? And the, and the Lord said to him, and he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a ram, turtle dove, sacrificial animal. Now, the land that Abraham came from this was a common practice. If they wanted to enter into a contract with another person, they didn't do it on paper. They didn't do it with a signature. They 
sacrificed animals and they cut up the animals and they put them in a line. Some on one side, some on the other, and both parties to the contract walk between those sacrificial animals as a means of confirming and promising and obligating themselves to the agreement of the covenant or the contract. That's what's going on here. But there's something very, very important that's a difference here. Well, Abraham puts out the sacrificial animals and so forth in the line. Everything's prepared. And uh, he cut them up and laid them opposite each other, verse 10. The birds of the prey came. Abram chased them all, verse 11. Verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, for they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Joseph in Egypt, his family stayed there 400 years, became enslaved. This is a prophecy. Verse 14. Uh, well, let's just drop down to verse 16. Then in the fourth generation they will return here for the iniquity of for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. 400 years they come back, and that's when they begin to possess the land. That's the whole context of this. And by the way, if you're ever puzzled, why did God tell them to go in and, and kill all the Amorites? It was God's judgment. They were some of the most wicked, immoral, depraved people to ever inhabit a place on this planet, sacrificing their own children to false gods. And God said, there's going to come a time when I'll use Israel as my judgment. So it wasn't just Israel being barbaric. Verse 17, and it came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. Just what the scripture describes in metaphorical terms is the terms is literally God's presence passing through between those sacrificial animals. Abram didn't go through. Abraham didn't go through as a party to the contract. Why? Because if he would have, he would have made it something different. God is establishing an unconditional covenant that only depends on him, not what Abraham or his descendants do. God has obligated himself to give that land to the descendants of Abraham. Verse 18, and on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And then he says this, to your descendants I have given this land. Look at this. To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. That's a pretty big swath, okay? Unconditional covenant. Here's what God promised. He gave Abraham... land from the Nile River, that's in Egypt of course, to the Euphrates River, that's back where Abraham came from. Over where the city of Ur is located. Clear over to modern day Iraq. So let's look at this. 
Here is present day Israel, right here. See that little, I didn't put anything in there, that little dead area right there. The broader area, well, I might include some of this up here, but it's a very small section. But the kingdom of Israel under David is all of this. But what God promised is all this. What does Israel have right now for a nation? This little sliver right here. God said, this is all yours. All the way down into Egypt to the Nile River. Red Sea all the way across, all the way over to the Euphrates River over here, modern day, ancient Assyria, modern day Iraq. Israel has never possessed all of that. They will. That's the prophecy. That's the guarantee. That's the promise. So, the extent of the land, Nile and the Euphrates, God confirmed the, God confirmed the covenant of the land provision to be everlasting in chapter 17 again. Could you go back to that previous slide? <coughs> the, the map I got from ucg.org, the arrows I put in myself because I couldn't find one that did what I wanted to do. So it's, it's approximate. Basically following the coastline the Nile River, Euphrates River. Yes. So uh, if you would answer, what's the difference between a conditional covenant and an unconditional covenant? This is an uncon unconditional. Says, I will do this. And if I don't do this, something else happens or if you know, or it's void or whatever. There's a condition to it. Yeah. Am I saying that right, Larry? Yeah. In other words, uh, it's 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 a, a covenant is unconditional covenant is stronger than a contract in legal terms. And so, a conditional covenant is if you do something, and and uh, that I will do something. I I will promise to do something conditioned on what you do. So if it had been the conditional contract, God might have said to Abraham, I'll give you this land if you do such and such. Right. But he didn't do that. In fact, Abraham wasn't even a party to it. God just said, I'm going to do this, and I'm making it legal here in terms that you can understand what yeah. human played by doing this contract and covenant your way. And, you know, but it only involved one part. And what's interesting is that no, no lawyer would ever have his client sign such a, <laughs> you know, it would be malpractice. But that's what is important about this is that God made it unconditional. He made a promise that was binding on his character. Yes. Well, him alone. Yes. Okay, aren't the Palestinian descendants of So. But they're not part of the, the promise. And I'll show you why in a few The promise was given to Abraham and his descendants through Isaac. Ishmael should have never happened. That was a mistake. Uh, 
called a sin if you want. It was, a, it was, it was something that was done uh, going back to the practices that were normal for everybody from where Abram came from back in the earth. But God didn't authorize that or tell him to do that. So in a sense then, Ishmael was an illegitimate son. He wasn't a real heir. Yeah, yeah, he, he got some promises. We'll, we'll, we'll see that. Uh, but let's move forward. We're going to get there. You may have some further questions. Three related covenants. I'm going to run through this very quickly. The land covenant. That's Deuteronomy 31 to 8. That's a covenant God made with Israel just before they entered into the promised land after they had come out of Egypt many years later. And it mentions the Abrahamic covenant. And it puts a condition on whether or not they would enjoy the blessings of that covenant in some ways. But it didn't change the fact that it was unconditional. It just said, you know, you're not going to get the full blessing if you, you know, do things that are wrong, which is what Israel did. They got into idolatry and all the rest until they finally came to the captivity. It didn't negate the unconditional promise, but it sure affected their ability to enjoy it uh, on the human level. So that's called the land covenant because it's really just an expansion. It just repeated the provisions of the Abrahamic covenant and simply expanded upon their ability to fully enjoy it and participate in the blessings of it. Then we have the Davidic covenant, which is 2 Samuel 7 where God promised that a descendant of King David would sit on the throne of Israel forever. Now that can only be fulfilled through Jesus Christ, who is a son of David. Go back and, and read our Christmas story. Both Joseph and Mary were descendants of David. Joseph, in a sense, legal adoptive father, but Mary the only human parent. So they had to both be connected to David. So the Davidic covenant expands on the national aspect of the Abrahamic covenant, specifying David's house would occupy the throne of Israel eternally. Then the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, specified how God intends to bring about the implementation of the Abrahamic covenant, and that's prophetic future, and that's through true repentance and the heart transformation. Just like we experience becoming believers, God, God's going to only allow the descendants of Abraham who truly have faith in him to be the ones who are there to experience and, and enjoy that blessing uh, the promises forever. The unbelievers obviously are excluded from that. <coughs> Everybody okay? I hate to just move on if you have questions, but um, I just wanted to explain this because you'll hear these other covenants. There's a lot to deal with there. But, uh, anyway. Let's now go to the root of the Arab-Israeli conflict. 
That's in Genesis 16. This is where all the problems began. Sarah's, Sarah's disastrous scheme led to the birth of Ishmael. She took an Egyptian handmaid, uh, I guess what she's called, and, and, and gave her to Abraham, convinced Abraham to take her as an additional wife so that Abraham could have a son because she was barren. It was only after this, when she became 90 years old in Barak, that God allowed her to, to bear Isaac. But she was past the age of childbearing right at this point, and you know, what other hope is there? And this wasn't something that was looked down on or thought to be wrong or sinful from where they had came from back in Ur of the Chaldeans. It wasn't of God. It wasn't God's intention, it wasn't his purpose, it wasn't his plan. Abraham and Sarah, Sarah tried to bring about what God had promised on their own. It was a disastrous mistake. In verse 4 of chapter 16, and this is critical, this is after after Hagar was expecting Ishmael, before he was born. Verse 4 of chapter 16 says, He went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that he had conceived, that's Hagar, when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. That means she despised Sarah. That led to Sarah being harsh with her, and she fled. God found her. The angel of the Lord found her, told her later <laughs> on in chapter 16, go back and submit yourself to Sarah. She did. But prior to that happening, she despised Sarah. The word despised in the Hebrew language is the same word you find in chapter 12, verse 4, is translated curse. What happens to those that curse Abraham? They are cursed. Now, it's not the exact same form of the word, but it's the same word. So, Hagar falls under that curse at this point. See. The word despise, same word found in Genesis 12, 3, where it's translated curse. Now, keep that in mind as we move forward. <coughs> Afterwards, Sarah treated Hagar harshly, verses 5 and 6. She flees into the wilderness. The angel of the Lord found Hagar, told her to return and submit to Sarah, verses 7 to 10, and she does. It would seem that Hagar realizes she did wrong. She obeys God, goes back, basically repents by her actions, at least repents of what she had done in despising Sarah. No more is said of her doing that any further. But this is going to crop up in her son. Before God sent her back to be in submission to Sarah, God prophesied weakness. 
guarding Ishmael, the son that was to be born. That's found in chapter 16, beginning of verse 11. And the angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. And that's, Ishmael means God has heard. That's why he adds that. Lord, that obviously added that. Now verse 12 is where it gets interesting. He, speaking of Ishmael, he will be a wild donkey of a man. That's a rather picturesque term. It could be put in more colloquial language, I suppose, uh, in our modern day vernacular. But, uh, he'll be a wild donkey of a man. The key word there is wild. The point was, a wild donkey unruly, untamed, nasty, vicious. That's what it's saying about Ishmael. He will be a wild donkey of a man. Number uh, letter A, he will be a wild donkey of a man. B, Ishmael's hand will be against every man and every man's hand against him. That's verse 12. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. What's that mean? You can't get along with anybody. In fact, he's against everybody, which means everybody is against him. Who does that sound like? Hamas, Egyptian brotherly, Islamic brotherly, whatever they call it, uh, Iran, Iraq. There's no negotiating the fundamentalist Islamics. You either bow to Allah or they kill you. <clears throat> now I understand, not all Islamic people accept that aspect or that position or viewpoint within Islam. But the, the Islam that came from Muhammad, that's it. Some have moved away from that. So they're not so adamant about that fundamental aspect. That's where it all came from. And then it mentions where he would live in the east of his brothers. Jay, I think the word Islam actually means submit. Really? That, that's, that's, I had a patient one time. He was a worked for the CIA or somebody. But he was, that's what he told me. He said, and I found that to be true. The word Islam means to submit. You will submit or die. Yeah. Mohammed began his career attacking caravans, killing everybody, taking what they put. You go back to Thomas Jefferson, the president, the Barbary pirates, the Mediterranean, the halls of Montezuma, the shores of Tripoli, northern Africa. If you go back and read their history, I won't get into all of that. Islamic pirates capturing ships, taking all their crew. Selling them as slave. They've been a thorn in the flesh of civilization since the days of Ishmael's birth. Then after Isaac's birth, let's go to chapter 21. Sure. What's the charter of these people? Why do they think they're justified in Say that again. <clears throat> The pirates and so forth, the historical 
Um, so she'll ask Becca, the economic uh, why do they believe they can do that? It goes back to Muhammad. <coughs> now, at this point, in this prophecy is made, there is no Muhammad, there is no Islam. That's a later development among the Arab nations, the Ishmaelites. But basically, it goes back to that philosophy. Their, their great commission is to subdue the world, make everybody Islamic. And if they can't, if, if they can't make you be Islamic, that's perfectly fine within their religion to kill you. Well, I think it goes back to uh, the Quran and the writings done after that. Early ones that succeeded Muhammad, like a charter. Now, Hamas has a charter, and in their charter, their charter says we're going to kill the Jews and wipe them out. So that's just an expression. They believe that's God's will in their interpretation. Chapter 21, verse 9. This is after Ishmael has been born. He's been in the family for a while. He's older. Finally, Isaac is born. The rightful heir. Verse 9 of chapter 21. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born uh, to Abraham, mocking. Now, when you read that, it doesn't seem to be that's not such a big deal. I just, you know, he's just teasing his brother. You know, it's just, you know, a little bit of good nature, low-level bullying. You know, maybe Isaac just needs to toughen up a little bit. Uh, and, and a lot of commentators will take it that way. And then they blame Sarah. <coughs> Be careful here. This is, in, this is crucial. What does this word mean? This is in your handout, so you don't have to take a picture of it. This is just a little bit of a shortened version, so I can put it on the screen, so you can just look at this. The text of chapter 21 of Genesis, verse 9, does not say that she saw him mocking Ishmael. However, Galatians 4, 29 indicates that was the case. In fact, it's very clear in chapter 21 that he was mocking Ishmael it was all after Ishmael had come come of age which is what being weaned in verse 8 means and uh, Sarah's response about you know the conflict between the two sons it's very apparent in chapter 21 it's just not specifically stated in Genesis 21 9 but go over to the book of Galatians hold your place in chapter 21 of Genesis go over to the book of Galatians we have God's inspired commentary on this. Galatians chapter 4, verse 27. Paul writes, For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. But this is on past that. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. He's talking about Christians in the church age. Now look, this is a very important distinction. I probably should have put it in on your sheet. The church is not party to the Abrahamic covenant. It was promised to Abraham. It's a promise to the nation of Israel. However, the church will enjoy the blessings 
that come because Abraham was told you'll be a blessing to all nations. You'll be a blessing to all people. There's a, um, an important distinction, though. It is Israel gets the land. That doesn't mean that the Gentiles in the, in the millennium are going to be in the dilapidated state. They're going to have a pretty good too. And they'll enjoy all the blessings that overflow, but it'll be Israel in the land. Let's, let's look at this again. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time, he who was born, that's Ishmael, or excuse me. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah that's Ishmael. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, that's Isaac. Now, that's a very specific verb tense in the Greek. It's called an imperfect tense, which means it's something that goes on repeatedly over time, but it happened in the past. So what, what the scripture is saying is, back in Genesis 21, it wasn't that she just happened to see him, you know, make a mocking comment. It was an attitude. It was an ongoing thing. I think it was, a, it was an extreme bullying process on the one hand if we could say that even worse it was intense it was ongoing it was unrelenting and it bordered on or included what the scripture here calls persecution so it's a pretty significant thing when she saw him mock what does that sound like and what happens to is what happens to Isaac? And what it all goes back to chapter 12, verse 3. I will curse them that curse thee, I will bless them that bless thee. That's not the same word here, but it's an action described as akin to cursing. Right? Yeah. Do we happen to know the age difference between the two? I don't remember. About 12 years. But uh, if we interpret that. Perhaps Isaac, it says when he was weaned, that's probably an expression that's in the English is not very accurate. It probably meant when he became of age, probably around 12, 13. Probably when this all came to a head because now he becomes a man, now he becomes the inheritor. It probably would play, place, uh, place uh, Ishmael in the 18 to 20s, perhaps. I, I, I'm not sure I'm exactly right on that, but that's, my fuzzy memory says that to me. So I don't necessarily always depend on my fuzzy memory. <laughs> Best I can answer right now. So Galatians 4.29 makes it clear that he wasn't just playfully mocking, but actually persecuting Isaac. Ishmael's mocking attitude was a grievous evil that revealed his character and echoed what was promised about him in Genesis 16, a wild donkey of a man whose hand will be against everybody else and everybody's hand will be against him. This is a fulfillment of that promise. So this was more than merely a human rivalry, but rather an indication of Ishmael, Ishmael's spiritual disposition and hatred of Isaac. Probably a hatred born out of the fact that I'm not the, the one that inherits his eyes. No doubt. But still, 
more than just a childhood rival. So, after Isaac's birth, probably about the time he became of age, Sarah saw Ishmael mocking. We know from Galatians this was a big deal, not just a simple little thing. Afterwards, Sarah brought this before Abraham. Hagar and Ishmael were then sent away by Abraham. He didn't want to do it, but God told him to do it. Send them away. Interestingly, they were about to expire from lack of water in the desert, and, and Hagar prays to God, and God directs them to water and spares their life. <coughs> it seems to me that Hagar may have well had a change of heart. Nothing said about Ishmael praying to God or anything. And it's through Ishmael the rest is said. You all, would you go back and review why you said Hagar had done wrong and had a change of heart? She did what she asked her to do, so help me understand why yeah. that was wrong. She despised Sarah, oh, cursed after, Sarah. Okay, after she had and Sarah began to treat her badly. It was conflict in the home. We can only imagine what you can see in the scripture over and over. Multiple wives is always multiple problems. I didn't mean that in a single wife. Only multiple. <laughs> but she, Hagar chose to run away. She departed from her husband. She departed from Sarah and God told her to go back, and she went back. That's all, we, that's all the scripture says. But I'm just suggesting that it may well have been, she literally understood she had done wrong and, and you know, was sorry about that, tested <coughs> or whatever we want to call it. It's not in scripture, but it's a good guess because she goes to God when she's in trouble after she's sent away. And God answers her prayer. By the way, if nothing else, this is a this is a great illustration of the fact that God loves everybody in this world. Even Islamic people, even people that are, you know, murderers and the worst of criminals, God loves them all. He answered Hagar's prayer. So this may not be Hagar's part or Hagar's fault necessarily. More Ishmael and his mocking that follow in the same category as her earlier sin of despising. I hope that helps. So, the root of the Israeli Arab conflict is right here, chapter 16, the book of Genesis. All of this is what led to an ongoing conflict between the descendants of Abraham through Isaac, which is Israel and the descendants of Abraham through Hagar, which are the Arab nations. So what we're seeing in Israel today here's where it started. Now they'll have their own reasons and they'll have, you know, Israel took our land, whatever, whatever. But it is part of that Division took place in Genesis 16. It's never been healed and never will be healed. Because it takes true repentance. Now, individuals that are Islamic, individuals, there's plenty of Arab Christians today 
Just like there's plenty of Jewish Christians today around the world. When I went to Israel many years ago, back in the 1990s, we had an Arab guy. There are some. Mostly they're Jewish. But I had an Arab guy who was a Christian. There's, there's uh, Palestinian Christians in God. In red, you had eternal. Are you explain that? Eternal. Eternal as one of your well, signs. They're, they're always going to have the land. They're always going to be a blessing to everybody else. And all those things promised to Abraham stretched into eternity to be the Lord Jesus Christ. A son of David, fulfilling the Davidic promise that will make that all happen as he is the king, the authority over the, the world during the millennial reign and then stretching into the eternal state. Eternal to me means afterlife also. And once you pass, it's eternity. So. Well, that, that's true. But think of it this way. Um, I'm talking about eternal state, okay. the new heavens and the new earth eternity. Okay. Uh, and just because somebody dies and we're going to be resurrected, come back and it's a part of that. But yeah, in the, in the, in the meantime, uh, the absence of the Lord is the absence of the the presence of the Lord. We're going to be with the Lord, but we won't have these fulfillment of these covenants at that point in the <laughs> so next week we'll talk about the Israel, the Israel Hamas conflict, or the I just put that Hamas because that's what we're all here. And it's actually the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I'll give you some history on that next week. And then we'll get into some prophetic implications looking at Ezekiel chapter 38. And that's very interesting. And that's where we can see some things that are very exciting in terms of how close we might be getting to the return of the Lord. Although, can't be certain because it's an unspecified time. But it, it, you can look at the world stage and things are lining up just like the people said they would line up in the end time. And almost all those nations mentioned in Ezekiel 38 are, guess what? Ishmaelite Um, I don't recall where it is, but I, I remember reading something about there will be a war against Israel when all, all the nations come together against the nations from the north, that they call it. And then there's talking about how God will intervene, you know, supernaturally in that, and it will look like there's no way that Israel can survive it. Yet, that's next week. <laughs> Don't go any further. You're going to ruin it. <laughs> yeah, that's next week. That's Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 38. Was it you that had suggested uh, the movie Before the Rat? Yeah. One that I saw that last night on Tubi. It was really, really and this is all connected right here. If anybody hasn't seen that, to be free, but you can go in there and watch about an hour and a half. It's really good. Really, before the, the rap, which is, it's great, like you said. You can watch that. 
That's all about the rapture. And the video that Jim recommended, a man by the name of Greg Hammer, Pastor of Gary Hammer, that's right. Uh, that's excellent. And that really, what I'm going to share with you next week on the history of the Palestinians, he made one of the best summaries that I've ever seen. Yes. Yes. Right. I probably couldn't have dug it all up in a week anywhere. So I'm going to give you what he said pretty much there. We'll discuss it. But if you haven't seen that video, Gary, was that title? Gary Hammer. Just go to YouTube. Go to Gary Hammer. What's the name of it? Israel, Hamas, and the end times. Yeah, that's the video. It's about 40, 45 minutes. That'll be a great, and you'll get everything, you're going to get everything, but you'll get a lot of what I'm going to say next week if you watch that ahead of time. So, just, you know, if you're going to watch that and stay home, don't watch it. If you watch it, you care. Any other questions? Hey, Jay. Uh, you know, they, they say Satan wants to kill the Israelites because Jesus said he won't come back until the Israelites look at him and say, Blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. So if there's no, Israel, there's no Jew, Jewish people to, to do that, then Jesus cannot come back and put Satan in, in the bottomless pit. So you think this, this thing with, with, with uh, Ishmael and Isaac, you think was Satan in, in, at that time inciting against Isaac? Because if he killed Isaac, the son of promise, this, it, would, it would have never... Come to happen, so you know Satan has been trying to kill Israelites from day one. He's, he's behind all of the conflict. Yeah. <laughs> 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 all right, let's pray.